This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Tom Rob Smith is the author of the blockbuster historical thriller Child 44 and its acclaimed sequels. His new novel Cold People is a speculative thriller following the last remnants of humanity after an alien colonisation programme forces us to live in the one place we cannot survive, Antarctica. He joined me to explore the rich themes implicit in this high-concept elevator pitch. How does human nature change under pressure? What ethical constraints still matter when the survival of the species is at stake, and which do not? The book is a wild ride, and I highly recommend it. Here's our conversation. Tom, your debut novel, the historical thriller Child 44, was turned into a hugely successful movie starring Gary Oldman, and you've written extensively for TV since then. What was your experience of the screen trade, and has it changed you as a writer, made you more aware when writing prose fiction of the opportunities of a new medium? Well, I had to like break that, that question into two bits, because actually I didn't work on the script for Child 44, so it was a very from afar involvement. Like, um was directed by Daniel Espinosa and he worked on Richard Price's screenplay, which I think he rejigged with another with another writer from Sweden. And I just turned up on set. I had a great time. It was filmed in Prague. It was beautiful. It was very exciting. The cast were fantastic. Gary Oldman, Tom, uh, Tom Hardy, Nomi Rapace. And they were lovely. I mean, they were really fun to be around. But as an experience, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't on my shoulders in any way creatively or I didn't really I mean they sent me the screenplays as they were in progress but it was kind of a curious involvement in the sense that it was purely fun but then working on tv then working on my own ideas and actually the American crime story assassination of Versace was based on Maury North's book so that was a completely different experience in the sense of it was my first adaptation and yeah, that is, it does make a huge change. You really go through a very different way of looking at things creatively. And it, you know, like everything changes you. I mean, it's hard to unpick how it changes you. I think one of the differences between screenwriting and novel writing is just the number of people involved. Um, you know, writing a novel is very lonely, which is beautiful in many ways because you just go off and you you hatch something and until it's finished, I mean, sometimes you can show extracts to editors and you can get a little bit of feedback, but they're very light touch at that stage. Normally, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but my experience is they can be light touch because they don't want to, 
steer you in a direction until the thing is finished. So fundamentally, you're on your own to the end, which can be anything from a year to two years to three years. And then in um, screenwriting, you are bombarded with thoughts at every turn, and many of them brilliant and make it better. But it's just there's a process of juggling all of them. I mean, one of the things when I'm often asked about is, you know, what advice do you have for writers? And the really tricky thing is to know which notes are going to make it because every note is fundamental. I have almost never had a note that's ridiculous. Almost never. Like I mean. The cliche of notes being kind of silly or disruptive. I've never experienced that really, except maybe in a tiny, maybe in like five percent, ninety-five percent. They're all brilliant. The question is, they don't necess—they're not necessarily right, and so it's that really hard thing of knowing which note to take and which note to push back on, and that is very different, but very interesting creatively. Well, your new novel, Cold People, is incredibly cinematic, hence my opening question. It's also science fiction rather than a thriller. Does genre matter to you? Is writing in a genre a self-conscious act or does it happen more by accident as part of your process? Genre matters. You know, if you'd asked me that question five years ago, I would have, I would, I don't know what kind of answer I would have come up with. I don't think I had really thought about it as much as I have now, but genre is really important to me, I think, on a deeper level, which is... I love the structures of genre, and then I like doing something slightly different to it, like the relationship between the familiarity and unfamiliarity between, um, and I guess this is a, a thing of, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't want to pull everything back to this, but looking at it from a queer point of view, which is this relationship of feeling like you're always on the outside of the structures, whether they be the establishment, politics, whatever it is, and looking in, and I have that thing with genre where I've always loved it. But then, you know, growing up, science fiction just never had any gay characters. You have this, you know, most famously is like Star Trek, which I loved. And of course, loads of gay men and women have loved that show. But they almost had no gay people in it. I mean, it was kind of gay inherently because everything is different. So you can kind of find your place in it, whatever that is. But it was just interesting to me that the relationship with genre and the same with thrillers with everything really you're kind of on the outside of something and so i do think i think a lot about genre now and 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 trying to master those structures which i love and yet do something different with it so there's that kind of balance of of grappling with the expectations of readers whilst also wanting to satisfy them and give them something different and i think that's a really interesting challenge within science fiction Cold People is specifically a post-apocalyptic narrative, and post-apocalyptic narratives are all the rage at the moment. You know, your book has come out at exactly the same time as HBO's The Last of Us, and there are many more alongside it. There are even non-fiction books about the likelihood of apocalypse by serious academic philosophers, and at least one of them has already been on this podcast. Why do you think we are obsessed with the apocalypse at the moment? Why are we so drawn to these stories of the end of civilization and of a small band of survivors? Well, I would I'd like reconfigure the idea a little bit for this book, which is I'm not that interested in the device that causes the the premise. To me, that was always I was always really interested. I mean, one of the reasons you reorganize the world is so you can set up a very different take on the questions we're grappling with. And I was always really interested in the idea of mass migration, that rather than it being specific to one group of people, the entire world moving at the same time. That struck me as a really interesting beginning point. And then, you know, it's always been the case that when people have been pushed off their land, they're given the worst piece of land. 
And so I wanted to take that historical fact and rather than kind of doing a historical fiction where you explore whichever group of people were, were treated appallingly in history, you know, you do it for everyone now. So it becomes like a different way of thinking about it. You're almost able to imagine it as yourself. What would you do? And obviously the most inhospitable piece of land on this planet is Antarctica. And then actually being quite interested in looking at it from a kind of human ingenuity point of view. Like, yes, obviously there's this, you know, a huge sense of loss, both in terms of culture and structure and people. But then there's this survival and how to explore the kind of ingenuity of people in that situation. So I always, when I was writing it, I found like the way they rebuild society down in Antarctica interesting. The way you have to reorder it. I found quite uplifting. I think some of the decisions they make are really, are really kind of inspirational about, you know, sharing resources, about helping each other, diet, nutrition, how sport can, you know, all of these things seem to me like they build kind of an interesting society. So, you know, the post-apocalyptic phrase, which is in some ways correct, because obviously this is thing that happens is terrible, but there's also a sense that out of the ashes can rise something very interesting and inspirational. We should just explain to listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book yet that the mechanism for triggering your mass migration to Antarctica is an alien invasion. Aliens turn up and they say humanity will only be allowed to live in Antarctica and they've got 30 days to get there. And you've alluded to the fact that this is very much a metaphor for colonisation in the tradition from science fiction, for example, of The War of the Worlds um, and many other genre works. And society is, I think reckoning with the legacy of colonialism today much more than ever before. What drew you to this theme in particular? I think what it is, is science fiction is interesting in the sense that it looks outlandish and then you look at the roots of it and you can see it everywhere. I mean, and, you know, so you talk about, you know, as soon as you use the word aliens, people kind of put it in a box of being fantasy. I mean, until they arrive, it is a, it is a fantasy but when you look at the historical examples, it must feel like that to simply be told this land that you've lived on for thousands of years is no longer yours. And by the way, we're going to give you the worst piece of land and good luck with all the diseases, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like that is the intrinsic premise of the book, except that is happens to everyone. And we're taken down to Antarctica and we're trying to make a life for ourselves. But also what I, was in, what I wanted to do is not really explain the aliens. Like they're completely like, they're not interested in us fundamentally. So we always think they're going to turn up and they're going to be fascinated by us. And I always thought, well, we don't know. We have no idea. And then what else, the other aspect of it is, is I think because genetic engineering is a big part of this book, there is a sense that right now, one of our, you know, one of our hesitations about genetic engineering on people is that we think our genetic code is kind of special because we're the dominant species on the planet. So there's a kind of mysticism about it. That somehow it's a secret formula. And then if we realized that we were kind of just a middle run species in the galaxy and there was nothing enormously special about our genetic code, we'd be much less precious about it. And therefore we feel like we could play with it and explore it in a way that enabled us to survive in the situation. So that they were kind of the two elements I was kind of trying to set up there. Well, well, we'll return to the theme of genetic engineering in a moment. But I wanted to ask you first about your view of human nature, because I would say you seem to have a very optimistic view of people in this book. There's a lot of cooperation and a lot of decency between the survivors in Antarctica. Prejudice and greed are almost relegated to the past. And unsavoury political leaders 
seem to be happy to cede power to academics and scientists who are responsible. You even uh, make a joke implying that President Putin retires to become a judo instructor, which I appreciate is not very likely in the real world. And all of this feels very different to the Hobbesian view of human nature that traditional post-apocalyptic narratives go for. How conscientious were you of going against the grain here? And is this a view of human nature that you personally share? Well, I mean, I don't know how, you know, it's hard to know if you roll the dice, what will happen. I think with this story, I found the idea of everyone being relegated to Antarctica and just fighting again, like a recreation of all of the battles that happen now over land and resources. It felt like we would do the same stories, but smaller and colder. And actually, what's the point of doing that story? We can just look at the news now. I really thought, well, what, you know, what about this fundamental shift? And one of the things I think that we're staring at in the future, because obviously I don't think we're going to meet 1.5. No one really thinks we're going to meet 1.5 from a climate point of view. We're going to have to deal with these massive changes. And I wonder, and I'm curious to know whether they will, you know, make us rethink in an interesting, hopeful way or whether they'll force us into darker corners. And I don't know the answer. So it's hard for me to answer that question in, in a sense of as a prediction my hope is that we will rise up and and there are points in history where we have under great pressure come up with extraordinary responses so there exists evidence for both sides i think maybe just as a piece of fiction it felt like a piece of repetition just to kind of reduce those conflicts and those kind of forms of behavior and then set it down in antarctica there's almost like a, there's that great, I can't remember whether lots of people saw that movie where someone has a near-death experience and oh, they're told that they only have six months left to live so they're going to kind of completely change their life and then they kind of get this cure and then they go back to exactly how they were again. And there's that sense that there's an inevitability and that you can't get out of these patterns. But certainly in this book, whether it's true or not, I took the approach of let's reorder things and rethink things and under the most extraordinary amount of pressure we come up with solutions and different ways of living that are kind of inspirational, as you say, hopeful. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. There's a huge cast in this novel, but arguably the protagonist is Antarctica itself. And there's a surfeit of information about the history and the geography and the wildlife of the continent. Have you actually been there? What were your favourite facts about the continent that you discovered writing this novel? I was on the verge of going there. I had booked the trip. It was all ready to go. And then the pandemic hit. So it was... a I mean, the trips are kind of interesting because you take the you, you go from South America and you, you take the boat across Drake's Passage and then you go down the peninsula. So it was, you know, it was it was not an expedition. I was not going to live in McMurdo Station for six months. So but it would still have been a wonderful thing to do. And then once um, that trip got canceled and then it was COVID for whatever it was, three years. And then I was shooting this show in Atlanta. So I haven't been able to do it yet. And it's very interesting because I've never, childhood before I've been to Russia, I've never done, I've never gone to a place I've written about after the book is finished. 
So in my head now, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, it will be really interesting, but regardless of that, I mean, it's, you know, it's true for both Child 44 and this book, which even though I went to Russia, that book wouldn't have been possible without all the research books. Like it's a book that stands on the shoulders of those non-factual books for sure. And um, that's true with Antarctica. And what I do when I, when I pick a subject is I go to a bookstore and just get the 10 most interesting that I can tell books on the subject. And they often, actually, I don't even think I'd say the most interesting necessarily, but the ones that seem to be about the ideas and um, the themes rather than kind of the minutiae, because this book isn't about the minutiae in that sense. So there's some minutiae, but I'm not pretending to be a, a scientist. I just uh, have a geeky love of, of all the facts. Uh, research is such a joy. I mean, that's kind of the part of the pleasure of the world building is you kind of really think about the detail and it's the detail, I think, that brings the story to life rather than detail for detail's sake. Because those books exist. I mean, they're really great. There's some probably behind me. Um, you know, and, um, you know, the people, you know, if you wanted just a kind of uh, a beat by beat breakdown of geology in Antarctica, that, you know, there are other books for that. It's just finding at moments like a little detail that brings that scene to life in people's brain, I think. We've spoken about this a little already, but. Once the humans get to grips with their new life in Antarctica, they start tinkering with genetics. And the cold people of the title aren't simply human survivors. They're actually hybrid creatures engineered to thrive in the extreme conditions of Antarctica. And this provides another opportunity for you to share a lot of what you've learned about animal life and how well-adapted species are to their local niches. So what most blew your mind in the process of researching genetics and biology? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there are lots of species that are very well adapted to the cold. I think what was really interesting is how fragile we are as a species. What's so interesting is that discrepancy between our dominance and really our our physical weakness and our vulnerability to the cold. And that became, I think, resonant in two different ways. Obviously, there's the psychology of Antarctica. We could, I mean, it, it, instinctively, you think of the cold and the wind. But the darkness is really difficult to deal with and the isolation. And there's a kind of strange contradiction between it being a vast continent. But because, you know, you have like a small hut to live in, there's that sense of claustrophobia as well. And so I was really interested in who can survive psychologically as well as who can survive physically. And then you're just looking and then it was because it was kind of really exciting to think, well, which of these creatures that we're going to, you know, adapt would we would we use which which of the their physical traits would be useful to us and then the question becomes i mean the one i keep locking onto in my head is our skin our skin is really bad in terms of the fact if you put on a really thick coat you can get too hot and you start to sweat like it's a really it's really difficult in antarctica to get that balance between heat and cold people often taking their layer it's really really tricky and so i was like well you know you would make your skin tougher we lose a huge amount of heat through our skin and then it became this sort of almost like a kind of sense of, well, actually, our, our fragile skin is is part of our identity. You know, there is, a, you know, this idea of having tougher skin, which you're often told as a kid growing up, you need to toughen your skin, get hard, you know. And actually, I'm interested in people's vulnerabilities. And when you start to lose those vulnerabilities, at what point do we lose some of what makes us interesting? And in fact, on a very kind of simplistic sense of strength, um, you know, some of the things that are weaknesses in inverted commas make us, I think, special. So that's kind of the dance of the piece. 
The theme of playing God is at least as old as the myth of Prometheus, probably older than that. What did you hope to bring to this tradition? I have to say I didn't really get too hung up on the idea because I personally I'm not religious and so lots of the the ethical stuff around um genetic engineering to me wasn't too much of a I didn't grapple with it in the sense I think other people really see that sense of tampering with something that has been made by a higher power my high power on this is this alien so I was like we don't know anything about them they don't seem interested in us at all so I no longer had that reverence for our genetic code so I was like well listen we're all going to die out so we might as well start tinkering with it so the ethical red line becomes irrelevant um and then I was thinking about it just literally in terms of almost not even as a judgment on them it's just so complicated that you as soon as you start making changes what's interesting is you have no idea of their consequence but you can see why they made the changes so to me I didn't I didn't struggle with it in in the sense that I think the question might be hinting at I was just much more interested in how do you get rid of that absolutely entrenched ethical red line like if you did that story now I just think it's really hard there's maybe some hints that people are are doing it in China and maybe in you know in in you know maybe there's some stuff going on but it's very localized probably about disease prevention nothing in terms of really changing people's IQs or people's physicality and so i i i had found it less of an obstacle to get to that that point what can we expect next for the survivors of the cold apocalypse you mean, is there a continuation? I am asking you, yes, to tell us a little <laughs> bit about what might happen in the sequel. As I said, I love going to the bookshop and buying those 10 books. That's my. That's such an exciting thing to me. And I actually have loved this feeling of not knowing how to write it. Like you sit down and think, what's the structure? What's the timeline? What's the prose like? What's the voice? Who's telling them? You know, all of those questions to me are like, are really exciting and I love that feeling. I mean, it's daunting and difficult, but it has a real energy. And, and the issue or the struggle with, with writing something that's a sequel is you've done a lot of that. You have the books, you know the prose, you can't really change the prose or the structure. You can do some things, but it would be very odd to completely reinvent the wheel because people want to follow on. And so to me, lots of the, that, that first, the spark of discovery is lost and I don't know whether I would continue it in that sense. We'd have to see and whether I could, I'd have to come up with something that was such a, that felt so interesting and new compared to the first book that it would have that spark. So it would be, it would be a, it, you know, it would be a, str- everything I've done pretty much is, is original and the, and the continuation for Child 44, the trilogy to Secret Speech and Agent Six was only really possible because the history was so interesting. It would, you, I was just buying another set of books from a different era. So whether it was Khrushchev or then the Afghanistan, the Soviet Afghanistan invasion, it was like I could get a different, and then it was like a whole new sense of discovery. But that was very, I was very fortunate with the history there. Okay, well, I'm going to say as one of your first readers for Cold People that you have to continue it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Just to go full circle, this is the How To Academy podcast, so I want to finish on a how-to. What advice would you give to budding storytellers? You know, I'm always, I always caveat the advice, um, the advice question with the fact that one person's absolutely brilliant piece of advice that, you know, creates your career is completely toxic for another person. Like, there's, it's, you know, there's a sense of it being 
like some people are like, you know, you have to go down this path and that path is enormously successful for them and other paths um, are not. So my, my thing is, was always, you know, having spoken to lots of writers and, and listened to some of the stories, the thing that is consistent is, I think, over theorizing before you get to the end because I do think once you get to the end, as whether that's a screenplay, whether that's a novel, whether whatever it is, getting to the end tells you a lot about the beginning. And you're in a much more confident position when you talk to people to really understand what you've created. And I think when you go and you speak to people and you pitch, it's almost like you're looking for affirmation that an idea is good. And, they, and the problem is they won't really understand the idea. So the thing that you're looking for, they can't really give you anyway. But when you've created it, you can just put it down in front of someone and say, this is what I've created. Here it is. Tell me what you think. And you're just in a much stronger position intellectually, financially, whatever it is. Like it's just a much, and I know that's really hard. I know it's really hard to finish something. Uh, and I know there are financial things built into that. But I do think you can lose a lot of emotional energy and intellectual energy chasing for someone to, you know, someone to say, go ahead, you should do it. Because you should just go ahead and do it. Sounds like good advice. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode starred Tom Rob Smith and was produced and presented by me. The series is made by me and Esme Bright, and we have help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Tom Rob Smith's Cold People is out now. If you love the literature of ideas, check out our past episodes with authors including William Gibson, Maggie O'Farrell, Charles Yu, Ian McEwan, Isabella Allende, and more. And visit us in person to see the biggest and brightest minds in global culture, live on stage in London. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>